I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome, everyone, to the Play Putsy podcast. It's Paul, Steve, and Steve here with you for the news of the investing world. All of last week, and this week, we're looking at quarter two earnings. We're in whatever week it is of earnings, and we've got a hell of a lot to talk about. We're going to try and get through as many as we can in the next hour. How have you guys, uh, two guys, been this week, and is the stock market going well for you? Yeah, hi Paul, hi Steve, hi everyone. Uh, it's been quite a nice week this week actually. Thanks to everyone who left some nice comments beneath last week when I was saying that, uh, yeah, my baby was battling his way through a kind of tongue tie operation, which is a pretty fancy way for saying cutting a lump out of the underside of his tongue. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, he's doing much better now. He's much happier um, and he's had he's had quite a good week, um, which means I have too by kind of extension. That's how I, we gauge the state of my week so far based on how much of it's been him shouting at me and how much of it has been my wife shouting at me um but <laughs> um interesting week in the markets this week bank of england's hiked rates again uh, we're now up to 1.75 percent a big quote unquote double uh hike of sort of 0.5 percent that was kind of interesting to me markets reacted pretty well from what i saw of it stocks didn't really take much of a, a dive and didn't get to anywhere that i thought was particularly eye-catching but um I guess 1.75 is interesting to me because it's now higher than the kind of Chase Bank rate. And that's where I've been leaving my emergency fund at 1.5%. And I wonder whether as rates go up more and more, we might just see some other people <laughs> pursuing them. I won't say chasing them uh, to, to get a slightly higher rate there. So I'm, I'm kind of keeping an eye on where I'm stashing my emergency fund just at the moment. Mm. as a, a thing that we don't talk much about, but is probably worth keeping an eye on, I suppose. Yeah, I've only just changed my emergency fund to Chase, and I quite like it actually. It feels like you're getting like a few quid dividend every every month. It's really nice. But um, yeah, you're right. We've got to start looking elsewhere now, haven't we? To see. Uh, and but what what is obvious at the moment is that people aren't exiting stocks quite as much for bonds just yet it's not quite happened i i know we're talking about yield curve yield curve inversions and things and it has started to happen but it hasn't quite happened in the way that everyone wants it to yet and um so we haven't had that change in risk equity premium yet so uh crash is called off so far <laughs> so far I mean, you're dead right about people not exiting uh, stocks. I was reading something from Bank of America uh, about 10 days ago now uh, that was talking about how to work out a little bit on how to work out when a market's going to bottom, which isn't really our thing. But for people who are into this kind of thing, there's a few things that might give you some confidence that what we're seeing in the upward trend at the moment isn't just a kind of bear market rally, but a genuine start of a new kind of longer term upward movement. And, and one of those things that's kind of holding back that thought is the thought that retail accounts haven't really capitulated yet. So during COVID, during the financial crisis, during the European debt crisis and so on, there were huge outflows from retail accounts. And from the, that point onwards, things started off on their way back up again. And so far, we haven't really seen that, according to Bank of America, who have a decent read on quite a lot of retail uh, trading and investing accounts. So I'm also looking at this market in a kind of 
slightly uncertain way. It feels mm. like there's a lot of money on the Fed here, but I feel like there's still a there's still at least possibility of a big capitulation still to come from retail. Well, the VIX is very much midway at the moment. It's very much iffy, even though that, I think that's a kind of backwards-looking uh, measurement. But, yeah, I feel the same. I, I'm fingers crossed right now for a very flat uh, couple of years, basically. I'd love a, I'd love a nice little flat couple of years uh, just to build it up. No capitulation, no more uh, big loops down. But there's a couple of the stocks that I have, like Amazon and... Uh, Tyson and Raytheon that are all quite high up and they've all recovered from the last big dip and I can I, I want to add I want to add to things like Amazon but I just feel it like it's you know looking at technicals and things like that you, you just look at it and go oh this is coming back down for a bit and there's going to be another opportunity here uh, it's head and heart at the moment for me I, I really don't know what to do just keep smashing it in i'm gonna smash in another thousand pounds tomorrow i think from uh, my monthly wage and mm. anyway how have you been doing steve d uh yeah i've been i've been doing all right i think one of the things we 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 not talked about so far was that really strong jobs report today we've had which was about double what they expected to add it takes employment back to pre-pandemic levels uh about three and a half percent unemployment which is uh you know one of the feds one of the feds targets so um you know a, a strong a strong labour ad like that um, lessens the likelihood that the hike, the rate hikes have finished, um, the interest rate hikes, because you know if they're continuing to create jobs and create opportunities for people, and people are continuing to go into employment, uh, the Fed doesn't have to uh, worry too much about putting a few more hikes on, which is probably why we've had a slightly soggy day today in the bigger, uh, yeah. the bigger stocks. But um, well, I saw it differently to that. I, see, I thought I was a bit of an idiot because I thought, oh, jobs jobs are going to be good. I really thought jobs were going to be good. And then it came in and the stock market smashed to the ground. And I was like, why have I lost 2% today? And wh why is this all going on? And then I read a bit of news. I think it was mainly on C CNBC that this actually gives the Fed the leeway because the jobs market is so good at the moment. It gives them the leeway to actually raise rights, rates. It gives them... A bit more room to be a bit harsher uh, yeah and that's really it. bring um, down that inflation economically speaking they would have expected a, a a bit of a dodgy jobs report today they would probably expect it to be under their under their target and then that would have lessened the chances of big rate hikes coming but with mm -hmm. the job market still being very very strong that means uh, the likelihood is is that you know bigger rate hikes are still around the corner and um, i think the market has been trending upwards on the thinking that rate hikes might be starting to slow but mm. this is the indication that that might not be the case, which again, Paul, mm. might be, um, you know, your indication that things could mm. could drop again. I don't know. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's anything can happen in this market. But in terms of my portfolio, I'm up about 6% this week, um, which Ooh. is pretty good. Uh, the Blitzscalers nice. is up nearly 12%. Uh, one of my stocks today is up 43% alone. Um, wow. So... Uh, it's been a pretty good, uh, a pretty good week for me. I'm, I am uh, sailing away. I'm just having a look myself. What do you own that's up forty three percent, Steve? Progeny. Oh, Progeny. lovely. Yeah. We haven't, we've never really talked about that on this uh, podcast, have we? Progeny. We ain't gonna uh, talk about it today, but um... well, no, Paul, you've missed half the shows. We might. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> right. We haven't talked about them without Paul. I promise you, we haven't talked about them with you. No, and I don't me. think we have. Maybe we could touch upon them because it's a really interesting stock. Uh, yeah, a we profitable stock. We that's probably should. Just little known, hot sectors. Yeah. 
Okay, um, we're going we're gonna to fit in this bit of news because everybody on the Discord has been talking about it. Uh, Trading 212 this week. And what We were going to answer someone's questions, but we're going to save that for uh, another week, I think. But Trading 212 released a new list of uh, caps on how many shares or how much in value you can own of certain shares on their platform. What are we thinking about that very, very quickly, just so we can put it out for a short highlight reel and Casper can make some... We'll, we'll do our scary face now for YouTube. Get ready. Three, two, one. Shot face. There you go. Right. Casper can do <laughs> I that can't. bit. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> um, what do we think? Um, I don't think Steve W's been been awake long enough to read this one, but Steve, you must have something. Um, so my only guess is that it's because um, because we have um, trading settlement in in the world when it comes to comes to trading things, um, it's usually um, trading two trading days plus one extra for settlement. So um, trading day T plus two they call it. Um, I would assume that trading two one two are fronting the cash for us, which is why we have liquidity straight away to go and buy something something new. And I would assume that's why they're lim- limiting sizes. So for some, for people who haven't seen it, you should have got an email by now. But essentially, on most big stocks, you've got about one point two five million dollars. Um, uh, is the maximum amount of stock that you can hold in most of the big shares, and they want you to place orders in uh, less than two hundred fifty thousand dollars sizes. So they've given you a table. A lot of these things in here, like they'll look like it says Coinbase, but they tend to be uh that the lower quant- and with the low quantity and they tend to be the leveraged versions of them so just pay attention to the ticker um when when you're looking at them but it, it's a strange move and and i'm I'm sort of remiss to criticize them although we will if uh, it turns out that it's a crappy policy that we hate mm. but they haven't really explained why they need to do this yet and i would hate yeah. to speculate so i think um I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this one over to you guys and see if you guys have heard anything. But I'm waiting probably for next week before you know before the barrels are loaded. I'm gonna speculate. I'll do this very quickly. I know we weren't gonna go into much detail on this because we don't know the full ins and outs of the story yet. But I'll speculate. I think there's too much trading going on with the leverage shares and the uh, uh, the double X leverage, uh, double times leverage. And they want that on their CV, uh, CFD platform. And that's having these limits will force people more onto CFD to trade and uh, therefore get them more fees. Basically, at the moment, if you're trading on the leverage shares, you're just giving leverage shares loads of fees and you're not giving it to trading to one, two. So there's there's one. I, I, that's not what I think, by the way. I don't know what I think because I don't know enough information, but I'm happy to, for you, to give you a bit of speculation there. Uh, that's that's what the uh, fire in the background and the shocked face would be, I think, if the, you did the video on it that one of those days. But we don't know. Um, lots of people coming out on the forum as disappointed, which is, you know, that's just one of the things. I noticed the same thing as you. I think more of it is to do with the ticker symbols that are based on the LSE rather than the, and the and NYSE. The but we, we don't know that for sure yet, so we, we have to... We have to wait for that one. And they haven't been very transparent. They kind of said something along the lines of it's just our risk management strategy, which rang alarm bells for me, if I'm honest. I, I was like, OK, this has got to be something to do with market volatility. There's no doubt about that. Is it to do with fronting, fronting the money or is it to do with the fact that they won't have enough money if there's a mass ex- exodus? I don't think the latter is true, but I'm not sure. And, that, and that's where I go with that. 
Interesting. So I'll just pick up from there for a moment then. Last week I said, with all of the kind of platforms and brokerages, we were talking about free trade at the time, I guess you need to work out that these companies are going to make money somehow and you need to try and find one that makes money in a way that you don't really care about. So it might be the case that you don't mind paying a commission for your uh, investments or trades or whatever, in which case Hargreaves Lansdowne is probably fine for you. It might be the case that you don't mind paying a monthly fee, in which case free trade probably for you. It might be the case that you don't mind whatever is going on here and your shares being lent out and whatever else, in which case trading 212, uh, the place for you. Based on what I've heard of this so far in the last, like, I don't know, three and a half minutes while you were telling me about it or so, <laughs> Um, I can't see this is likely to affect me. The numbers you were talking about are just far too big, uh, for one yeah. thing. Even on the bottom end of things, I'm sort of surprised that if it were the case that this is to try and push people towards their CFD platform, I wonder whether some lower numbers might be more helpful with that. I'm not sure how many people are flinging around sort of north of 250,000 in um, oh, no, we're bets, saying things like The famous things like Argo Blockchain. Argo mm -hmm. Blockchain has two separate on the OTC and... The, is, sorry it's uh, london and otc yep. isn't it and um yeah it's quite low i think what was it steve about thirteen thousand. yeah something like that about about okay. twelve and a half thousand dollars i think just just interestingly steve i'm just having a quick look at the list now uh see if it would affect you uh it, it will um you won't be able to afford a berkshire hathaway air share uh, because the maximum order on that is $250,000. Of course, Berkshire's nearly double that at the moment. So uh, you'll need a new broker, I'm afraid. So is it the case that I can't own that or I can't buy it all in one go? Again, that's... all in one go. Well, well right. we don't know. Well, yeah, you can't buy one share of it because it's a maximum oh, order. That. But the the value amount, there's also a value amount as well. So mm. there's a certain amount you can that own you can six, own of uh, it. Oh, three. Uh, you can own three. Yeah, yeah. So it's a uh, it. So, but then, but then that's chicken and the egg uh, question after that. Because if you own uh, whatever stock, I think um, Abvi was in there for one and a half million or one one million two hundred and fifty. So if you owned one million one hundred and the stock appreciated, would then you be banned from buying any more at that point, or would you be banned uh, prior to that? So there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of odd things but god i don't know who the person out there is owning one and a half million of ad on trading two or so, two anyway so the general message then is just don't buy any stocks that go up and we'll avoid this problem which is a strategy yeah. i've been employing for quite a long time now yeah welcome to everybody <laughs> to the podcast <laughs> all right speaking of stocks that then go up let's uh, talk about earnings week uh, lots of earnings going out there today uh what do you want to talk about first oh me? Okay, fine. Uh, I'm going to talk about some REITs uh, in that case. I wasn't expecting to go first this time, but here we go. Uh, last time we went with some quick earnings and then some slower earnings, and, I, and we paired things up a little bit. So I've got a pair of uh, REITs that I've been looking at, and they both reported earnings this week. One of them is Realty Income, based in the States, uh, and it's uh, basically shopping uh, retail REIT. And the other one's Federal Realty, which is broadly a similar sort of thing. Uh, and both of these have done quite well. So FFO, Funds from Operations, which is the thing that we use to measure kind of REIT profitability, I guess, rather than uh, net income or something like that, was up about 17% at Federal Realty, up about 15 16% at Realty Income. Uh, both of them are holding up quite well. I guess with earnings reports in general, I always find them easier to make sense of if I have a kind of investment thesis or what I'm looking for before I kind of go in on these things. And here's what I'm looking at for both of these two. They're both retailers and therefore I'm looking for signs that they're going to manage to be immune from the threat of e-commerce. 
basically. I'm not looking to see things going backwards in certain ways. And they both try and do this in different ways. So Realty Income tries to stuff its properties full of really high quality, high uh, debt caliber uh, tenants that are likely to pay. And Federal Realty tries to buy stuff that's basically bang in the middle of big cities because the thought being if e-commerce leads people to wind up their retail operations, they're going to wind up their worst stores first and the better ones are going to be largely untouched. Uh, more or less they're doing kind of okay on both of these it looks like realty income has occupancy of around 98 percent federal realty at around 92 they give you this least number which is 94 uh, percent which is kind of a weird number because you get it by adding together the amount of occupied stores you have plus the amount you have signed to be occupied which yeah. is sort of a strange number because you could get a number north of 100 percent like that right so if you're fully occupied and you've got 50% signed on for next year again, your your least number is 150, even though things look pretty grim. But things look all right. Uh, both of these have hiked their dividends. Federal Realty for the 55th year in a row. Realty Income for the 99th consecutive quarter in a row. I wouldn't put money on them not doing that next quarter to get to uh, three figures. Um, but apart from that, uh, fairly quiet, fairly steady stuff uh, from these two. But just to give you a feel for... We don't talk about REITs very much. I'm looking for things to just carry on steadily. They've both been pivoting their portfolios around. Looks like things are going nicely enough there. FFO up quite nicely on both of them. Yeah, I didn't know a lot about uh, Realty Income, even though I own it. And it's, it's, So Realty Income for me is one of the swan stocks. So I will limit myself on Realty Income to a quick nose at the top line numbers every quarter. And then on the, on the year, that's when I'll look at it. It's one of those stocks which I'll just kind of let run and... Because I don't want to, I I don't get knee deep in every single stock. But can I interest you in another REIT maybe that also released its earnings this week? Uh, that would be Seagrow, uh, UK REIT, which I think uh, has a lot. If you if you like those two REITs in the US, I think you'd like the earnings on Seagrow. So Seagrow this week released its earnings, uh, revenue up thirty four percent. I thought that might make Steve D quite happy because that is up. Uh, as That's much as some of his high-class growth stocks. Um, net income ones. doesn't matter. Net profit doesn't <laughs> matter. Operating income up 54%. So in the UK, that's not exactly the same as an FFO, but uh, it's it's getting closer. It does, I haven't released the FFO numbers or in the UK, they call it something different. Uh, but operating income up 54% and net change in cash up 518%. So they are holding cash to go buy something. Uh, some of the big significant parts of it for me were you saying that uh, Realty Income has an occupancy rate of around 97%. So does Seagrow. It's also got a 7% exposure to Amazon. And uh, believe it or not, very recently, so Amazon is the big headline. Everybody knows that Seagrow has 7% in Amazon and it runs their logistics websites, uh, logistics sites, same as DHL and I think Royal Mail as well. It has here in the UK. But the big one recently was uh, it took on Netflix. Why would Netflix need big ass buildings? I hear you ask. Um, believe it or not, they are running their own um, storage facilities and their own uh, shoot locations from Seagro's buildings. So Seagro now has a big lockup on Netflix as well. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, total shareholder return in 2021, a little bit less in 2022, but it's up 55% total return and uh, very high demand for Seagro's buildings. <coughs> Downside is it's still probably 30 times FFO 
uh it's still 30 percent over nav so there's still a value bit there but i got in probably 10 percent ago uh I, I added a bit more and um yeah i think people should look to the uk for REITs. oh yeah sorry 17 percent uh increase in data center exposure as well which is something i think people need to watch very carefully it actually has equinix and What's the other one? Cyrus One. Cy yeah, Cyrus One is the other one. Uh, it's got those two as customers here in the UK. So um, I think Seagrow, and I said this probably two years ago, this is a well-rounded REIT and I'm very, very, uh, very, very interested in it. I think it's about 70% of FFO goes towards dividends. 2.5% dividend yield. Not that it matters too much because it's, it's moving like a growth stock at the moment. Um, very interested. What do you think? Any th any thoughts on that? Have you ever looked at it? I haven't. Well, I kind of looked at it a little bit. Um, I got to the. I well, I slowed down my looking when I saw kind of where it was priced because I looked a bit more recently than you did. But yeah. um, Amazon and warehouses. I mean, the story coming out of the states is that Amazon have started trying to wind back their warehousing uh, thing, at least out there anyway, and that's put some pressure on some industrial REITs out there. Nothing similar in this side of the pond, I guess. Have they been winding it down or are they just holding it? Because I thought it was they were just holding it. I think they're letting it out. Uh, okay. So I say winding oh, right. it so down. I mean, sorry, yeah. yeah, not using it as much. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, they can do what they want <laughs> as long as they're paying the rent. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I guess kind of seems they are. I suppose, I guess that Amazon don't own their own warehouses in quite the same way over this side then. Uh, no, it's, uh, well, it's, I think it's 14% from Tritax and 7% and Seagrow. And there are obviously little bits in, in between, but I think it's mostly leased. Uh, but also you've got to cons consider with Amazon, and I don't think it's that big of a story, uh, because it is only 7% of their revenue. I think that's well diversified in my opinion. Um, uh, with Amazon, the CapEx spend that they've been doing over the past two years they're they're able to hold on to that and let that build to fruition in future years i think that's what we're all holding on to when we own amazon at the moment and um i i think i think the leases are going to stay hmm so anyone who owns amazon is indirectly paying your dividends for you that's the plan amazon's a dividend stock now have that <laughs> i'll justify that in my next video <laughs> Okay, what's next on your on your earnings list? Right, well, I've been... Uh, the reason I let Steve go first was because I've been lazily trying to group man together and so far I've made no no effort, uh, so no no breakthrough. So I'm going to group together Melly and Airbnb because uh, okay. you could go to South America from Airbnb and that's where Melly operates. So that's the theme. <laughs> that's the theme of this pair. Um, I think it's just me who owns Mercado Libra. Um, but oh, this was it? a... This was a pretty... Do you own it, Steve? Or you did own no. it for a while? Okay. Um, this was a pretty fantastic um, uh, set of earnings. So net revenues for Melia are up 2 uh, to 2.6 billion, which is up 56.5% year over year. That's on a, an FX neutral basis. Uh, income from operations, 250 million. So that's about a 9.6% margin. 30.2 uh, billion total payment volume. So that was up 83.9%. That's obviously the Mercado Pago uh, segment. 8.6 billion in gross merchandise volume, uh, up 26.2% year on year. Um, E-commerce looked pretty good in Latin America. Um, the market agreed, pushed Melly about 16% higher. Uh, I had a really quick scout down the earnings call. 
And uh, I pulled out that one of the things they're really looking to do at the moment because, uh, well, as you've seen with Amazon, shipping costs have just been 20% of sales if you take out AWS. And, and it's the same problem with Melly, uh, even though their delivery times are, you know, more like three or four or five days, uh, not, you know, next minute. Um, but one of the things they're trying to encourage is, like Amazon has an Amazon day, they're trying to have a kind of Melly day and encourage people to fill up the basket because the more things that they're delivering one go to somebody rather than over you know the six different days it, it would obviously bring their shipping costs down as a uh, uh you know it makes them more efficient so that was quite an interesting little development from them but generally i thought they were pretty excellent earnings airbnb uh they um missed on bookings but only by 0.1 percent on consensus they beat on revenues beat on adjusted ebitda beat on eps beat on uh free cash flow generating 800 million they were only supposed to generate 475 million according to wall street and beat on guidance on revenues as well uh there was nothing wrong with these earnings at all um it was a little 5% dip afterwards, but it seems to have recovered. Uh, I've scribbled about $4 billion in free cash flow for the year. Uh, Airbnb doesn't seem too badly priced, if, if that's true. It's generated $2 billion in free cash flow this year. They want to spend that buying back stock, Paul. Um, it's a strange one, this, but we'll let them sort that out. I think they've got about $8 billion in cash, so it's not going to hurt them. Uh, Steve, you hinted to me that you thought this one was growing on you. Is it still? No. Um, it's now roughly stagnating on me. Um, it's not going the other way, put it that way. Uh, I heard Tim Byers on The Motley Fool uh, talking about this buyback, and I think he called it a horrible uh, use of that cash or something like that. I don't have that strong a view of these sorts of things. I, I tend to think, actually, that all the other kind of expansion plans that he was talking about um, are ones that I'm happy to see this company staying away from for the time being. I was watching an interview with the CEO today and I've forgotten his name and I'm cross about this. Brian Chesky. Thank you. Uh, one of the things he said... Well known in a really nice name. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things he said about uh, Airbnb in general was that he... One of the things he realised is, look, if you try and do things as a kind of side project, they don't really work in the same way. So I'm happy to not see Airbnb trying to get into a bunch of other... Uh, verticals at the moment. I'm happy to see them concentrating on doing what they do. We talked about this offline Airbnb a little bit and uh, what it is and the kind of offering that it has and I am convinced of this. I am convinced that there is a market for Airbnb stuff. I am part of that market for what it's worth. I go up to Scotland usually once or twice a year with my wife's family and it's nice for us to find a kind of house that we can sort of stay in uh, together and cook and eat and so on and so forth. Um, and Airbnb is absolutely perfect for that, and it's brilliant for serving that kind of thing. It's clearly the best platform for that by a long, long way. So there's clearly an opportunity there. The question to me is how big is this opportunity, uh, and how many people want that versus the, I guess, predictability uh, of something you might get from Hilton, or in my case, more likely a Premier Inn, uh, or something like that. And that's the bit I'm still trying to figure out. They said in their recent earnings call, I think that... They're seeing record numbers of stays. Their hosts are increasing prices. It came in a little bit below expectations from what I see of it, but there's definitely a moat here. There's low cost to customers. It works for a certain kind of holiday or certain kind of trip. I'm still figuring out exactly how big I think the market for that is, which is why, and I haven't made any progress on that, by the way, which is why it's stagnating on me a little bit. Okay. Uh, anecdotal. This is all anecdotal. This is all Peter Lynch looking at the Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, for me 
so recently i've done a lot of airbnb stays and personally for me going down for work i didn't give a crap where i was staying they could have put me in anything and it'd been perfectly fine however going with my missus some of those places did not look the same as what i turned up to uh on the pictures and that would have caused my missus to walk out also so between airbnb and booking.com it's 50 50 on my bookings whether i book with airbnb or not airbnb sometimes cheaper uh, but also there's in the back of my head there's always that element of risk that first of all it's going to take them 24 hours to confirm it that's going to be really annoying and it really does sometimes take 24 hours for the owner to or the host to confirm it then you don't quite know if it's going to get cancelled you see a lot of the reviews on there saying this host cancelled 24 hours before and you know to avoid it and that's perfectly fine i get that um but very recently and most recently uh, is what demographic i think airbnb appeals to and the work that they have to do to break through to different demographics they're they're doing really well in the 20 to 30s i think and i think that's great for airbnb but i tried to book a wedding with my parents very recently and i said let's get an airbnb and i pushed them and pushed them to go on airbnb in fact booking.com was cheaper it was a nice hotel all all of those facts in this quite remote area to go to go to this and my parents would not book an airbnb because they were not satisfied that it was going to be the same thing they weren't satisfied that they weren't going to be living with somebody else which is the other big thing i was like yeah so one of the uh, the places was a duplex so the couple that live there live in a separate annex to the actual house that you'd be staying with they were like oh no 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 i'm not living with some i'm not going there with somebody else living there so i uh, that just anecdotally told me that airbnb has a brilliant brand but i think it's gonna be a lot more niche than we think it is and that uh, maybe maybe the world will change as people get older and thing and things change and i can completely understand that but at the moment for me booking is 50 50 between airbnb and booking.com but when i go to buy something on the internet it's probably more like 90 10 percent between amazon and ebay so it's it's it, it isn't that big of a difference to me to maintain that airbnb is this runaway leader in this space that's only anecdotal and i have uh, and that is probably why i can't invest in it right now the thing about 20 to 30 year olds is they quite va quite fast become 30 to 40 year olds and yeah. the 20 to 30 year olds underneath them uh start booking uh, airbnbs over hotels they also take the children to airbnbs and the idea of going to a hotel becomes a foreign uh mm -hmm. a foreign concept which it probably isn't for people like of our age that grew up and you know there was no such thing as an airbnb so uh, i think the wrong place to be at the moment is in hotels because i think airbnb eventually disrupts them uh, almost entirely um and i think that will be a foreign concept to us uh, rather than you know just going and staying in in, in a house like that the, the airbnb's biggest problem isn't that people uh people won't want to go stay in someone's house the problem is is that governments will crack down on this as a way of winning free votes and cracking down on landlords that's that's the the big issue that i think airbnb has around the world mm. um but at the moment <laughs> that's definitely not playing out and uh you know airbnb's growing at a, a rapid rate and uh and hitting highlights hitting um 
hitting, um, you know, hitting new heights every, every inning. So it's really difficult to criticise. So quick, quick tangent. I've got, got a funny story, actually. I, I had a mate who lived in Barcelona. It doesn't matter. There's no way he listens to this. Um, I had a mate who lived in Barcelona, and he used to rent his rented flat out as an Airbnb. And I went to stay with him one day. Uh, it, obviously, he gave it for free. I was kind of just in there. And they went out, and I got a knock on the door from the Spanish government saying, are you, let's just be part of his name there, going, are you so-and-so? And I was like, no. He goes, well, we're looking for an Englishman named blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, right. It, they, were, they were coming round to fine him for renting out his Airbnb from a re- uh, subletted apartment. And that's very interesting how that might spread over here. Just a quick last bit on Booking.com. Booking.com also runs like Airbnb. You can put your Airbnb on Booking.com as well, which is something also i think is a worry for airbnb because i believe their system while they have brilliant branding and that is their moat i think that is their only moat i don't think they have a lockup or any patents on this system to say that no one else can copy it and i think booking.com is doing a very good job especially by giving a lot of discounts on these to uh, disrupt that yeah their moat's interesting they as you point out they they kind of have a one of these things where the name is a product uh, of a sort we talk about getting an airbnb rather than getting a, a someone else's flat or something mm-hmm. um but uh i guess then their moat's a really interesting one i think of their moat as a network effect basically uh mm-hmm. more people want to advertise on it because more people shop on it so more people want to shop on it and then more people advertise on it and on and on it goes but i mean i think about this kind of moat a lot because i own meta platforms and so on and i'm watching those user numbers go up and down and so on because that's the attractiveness to an advertiser it does strike me that that moat goes away quite fast as well as appearing quite fast so if things start going the opposite way around so you start getting take meta for example uh, fewer users well now all of a sudden it becomes less attractive to advertisers uh, which makes it become less attractive to users well i mean that's not really the reason people are on meta but you get the idea with airbnb i guess with vendors less attractive place to advertise if there are fewer people if there are fewer people that's less attractive and so on and so forth um less things to buy um that's a moat that kind of i always sort of think that sort of moat goes away as far uh, the same kind of rapid rate that it arrives but i could be wrong about that it's sort of the opposite of a reit right i mean they don't want to own any buildings which is why i'm in favor of them not buying stuff like buildings with their uh buyback money uh, they just want to sit there and basically take toll booth money off of people booking uh accommodation and stuff which i think is a really nice business model for what it's worth the problem here is so booking.com and expedia to that degree have had to pivot because they, they were being disrupted it would have been stupid for them not to pivot so now what they're trying to do is use their uh, stronger balance sheets to try and um, disrupt the disruptor uh, unfortunately for them airbnb raised an astronomical amount of cash in this ipo so it has just as much potential to uh, to to continue uh, beating these companies up um one of the things i would say is could develop to being uh, a moat for uh, Airbnb or something stronger would be their air cover policies, um, which gives insurance to the host and to the booker now, uh, basically that the the room will be what you expect and to the host that, you know, if somebody throws a party and smashes your house to smithereens uh, that you can claim, I think it's up to a million uh, in, in damage protection and that is offered to both, well, we say it's offered free of charge, it's in the price that you pay. Um, booking.com and Expedia as far as I'm aware don't have anything that resembles uh, the level of cover that they have 
and I wouldn't imagine uh, when they're on rapid discounting mode like this to try and steal something back from Airbnb that they're in a real hurry to offer it. Uh, so that could be something that uh, Airbnb develops into into a moat because at the moment I don't see Expedia and Booking.com even hinting that they're going to bring that in. Yeah, brilliant argument. Right, so what we got next for the... Um, Sorry, Paul, do you have a moment earnings. just to share your um, anecdotal stories about buying stuff online in South America? <laughs> oh yeah sorry i forgot my card early break. uh no i don't have anything on that sorry well, the fact that we're not talking about Mercado libra just means that we all think they were fantastic earnings and we're all sort of punching ourselves for not having 1.25 million dollars in it like we're allowed to with trading two and two yeah so the only story that i have with Mercado libra i think i've told you guys already and you can run you can run your own things in a second i'll shut up but um it should have been obvious from amazon you saw amazon uh release its earnings you should have gone but that's going to be good. But then you look at Alibaba and Alibaba didn't do as, as well as it should have. So uh, that probably doesn't uh, fit very well. But I that's what when Melly came out, I went, oh, that should have been so obvious. I think you can keep kicking yourself for what it's worth on the uh, the Melly thing. Alibaba strikes me as a different type of animal at the moment. I don't think that share price is moving around based on its earnings particularly. I think it's mm. moving around mm. based on a bunch of other stuff, which... I mean, put it this way, no one was thinking, yeah, I don't think Alibaba's earnings are high enough to justify whatever it is, $98 at the moment or something like that. It pretty mm. clearly is. The main issue is mm. uh, whether you're going to run into kind of political risk and difficulty and end up with nothing at all. And strong earnings, I don't think, change that very much. Mercado Libra is firmly in my too hard pile for what it's worth. Um, it's a kind of thing where I've not managed to build a decent case for it myself. It's not for lack of trying, I promise you. And when I hear people trying to build cases for it, they don't really kind of resonate with me in quite the right way. So revenues, just to run back over what Steve said for a moment, at 2.6 billion. They're growing at about 57% uh, in total, I think. Uh, an operator net margin now is 4.7%. So I'm trying to work out then. We've got a market cap of 51 billion today. This is after the kind of big um, jump. Uh, how do I kind of get to something that looks right there from an investment perspective to me? So in 10 years time, I want something generating around 5 billion in free cash for a 10% return onwards from there. Um, and I'm trying to work out what the margins are going to be. And with a 15% margin, that means about 34 billion in revenues. So you're looking at about 35, uh, sorry, 30% Kager uh, going forwards, maybe. 25% margin, that's 200 billion in revenues. 23% Kager with a 35% margin, it's 145 billion. 19% Kager. So the questions that for me are twofold, right? One is, what's their margin going to be when they're at a fully mature stage and not going to be a 4.7% net margin business? I mean, if they are, they're grossly overpriced, but I don't think they are. So what's it going to be and how far can they grow their revenues? And those are two questions that I know the answer to neither of. I'm happy to guess at the margin a little bit, but then the question becomes kind of where the growth sort of comes from here. So growth this year was 57% in revenue. And before, the year before it was 67, and the year before that it was 74, the year before 73, the year before 103. So growth is slowing down, uh, as you would expect uh, when you're growing your revenue numbers, at, yeah. you know, uh, 74% or so, right? You expect it to come down. The question is, how far, how fast? And the answer to that, to me, depends on how big these damn markets are in Mexico and Argentina and Brazil. And I do not know the answers to those questions. Could this thing, in 10 years' time have grown at 19% on average revenue and have a 35% net margin. Maybe. Uh, that's kind of where I'm looking for it to be. Could it grow at 23% and have a 25% net margin? Also, maybe. 
Um, but these are still maybes uh, for me, and therefore, therefore I don't have the kind of confidence to invest in this sort of thing. That's basically how I'm thinking about this kind of thing, to make sense of the earnings call. So the earnings call tells me it's growing fast. It's doing the thing that I talked about with Amazon quite a lot, which is making sure it's the go-to place for, as Steve was saying, sort of three-day delivery uh, or something like that. Um, and it's doing a very good job of making people disincentivized to shop elsewhere uh, with its kind of distribution and its payment stuff. It takes all the kind of pain out of these sorts of things and all the friction out of the process. Great. And the question is kind of where does that take us in financial terms for me? And I don't know the answer. Steve? One one of the things to think about with um, Mercado Libra is they're basically trying to... Um, they're trying to do what Amazon has done. So they know that the e-commerce side of it is going to be small margins. It's going to be very difficult because they've got to essentially build out a whole delivery network in the same way that Amazon didn't have to build out a delivery network but figured that they could do it cheaper than their their they're now competitors. So Mercado Libra was, is looking for a flywheel and the way that they've done that is Mercado Pago. Uh, Mercado Pago is essentially their fintech uh banking um, and payment solution um, so one of the metrics that's really interesting to look at is not just the payments by Mercado Pago on Mercado Libre it's the ones that are outside of it and that's where the massive amount of growth I think is that's where Millie's flywheel is if you're looking at um, I mean we only looked at Visa and MasterCard last week as, a, as a, an idea of the kind of free cash flow these companies can generate when they were at nearly 60% free cash flow margins, I, I seem to remember, or even 69% free cash flow margins. If Mercado Libra can get the, you know, uh, the payment volume of South America and anywhere near those kind of margins, even half of those margins, there's your flywheel. Uh, and that is the idea with Melly. It's kind of got first mover advantage. It's being brave. It's got the distribution network. The issue you've got, the risk, because it would be remiss not to talk about the risk, is that they also offer credit via that network. And South America, uh, they're quite famous uh, for being sovereign, uh, sovereign debt and um, and insolvency and default. And uh, you know, the people are obviously not the country, but uh, it's that's risky. I think that that that's a risky arm of the business. Yeah, and I just did a quick Google because. Uh, as, as I recall, uh, Mercado Pago is similar to that Colgate type stuff, isn't it? Where uh, 60%, it says here, as of 2012, 60% of Latin American adults are still unbanked. And the idea of something like Mercado Pago is to give them uh, a bank because what they don't, while they don't have a bank, they all have a damn phone. And uh, the idea there is the, the growth story there of something like Mercado Pago. And there's a few companies in South America, India, Africa, uh, even China did very well with something like this as well, didn't it? Um, probably Alipay. And th there's a growth story there. There's a growth story. When you've got 60% of uh, Latin America unable to pay for things quickly and you give them something to do that with, you're going to see a lot of uh, revenue and fees there. Um, very interesting story there. And I think that's the biggest part. This is the same, when, when I talk about the Colgate thing, this is the same as the brushing teeth thing. Half of India doesn't brush its teeth yet as it becomes more and more uh, middle class and people want to have sex with each other a lot. They want to start brushing their teeth and that's just, yeah, that's how I relate it. And um, that's my two cents on Mercado Pago, to be honest with you. <laughs> 
Next is the London Stock Exchange next. Group. I mean, it's not, it's not next. It's just that I thought I'd talk about it here. Um, uh, okay. Uh, so the London Stock Exchange Group, um, which is owned by, I think, Steve and neither of the rest of us. Uh, but I am an avid follower of this stock. Um, for reasons I'll tell you about in a moment. Released its, I think, half yearly uh, uh, earnings. Right. So being a UK company, would tend to release them every six months rather than every three. Um, and the results seem to be pretty good, and this might be a turning point for me on this stock, which is why I'm following this uh, with some interest. So the London Stock Exchange Group, just for those who haven't heard us banging on about it before, you tend to think of that as the kind of platform on which, uh, I guess, FTSE stocks are traded and invested in and so on and so forth. If you think that's what they do, you'd be correct, but it's not most of it. Most of what they do is data and analytics because they've acquired a company called Refinitiv. Uh, so when we're talking about earnings and stuff and we say, oh, it was higher than Wall Street's expectations or lower than Wall Street's expectations or was a beat or a miss or whatever, it's usually refinitive that we're getting that data from. Um, and that makes up about 68% of their kind of total revenues. And that grew at about 9%. Capital markets, which is the sort of tradey stuff, uh, grew around 17%. And their kind of post-trade clearing stuff uh, grew at about 8%. So profits are up this year, 21% to... Uh, to about a billion they're launching a buyback for 750 million uh, pounds or so they have a market cap of 45.5 billion so they're buying back now oh, one and a bit percent uh, of that um, and the dividends increased to 31.7p a share that's the smaller of their two dividends because they're a UK stock so they pay a little dividend and a big dividend for reasons that I don't fully understand Share price is 84.50, so that's about 0.3% plus. You'll get the bigger one, which about sort of twice that. So the dividend's probably looking at about a percent, I would guess. Um, Steve, anything jump out at you from there? You own this stock. Uh, only that, when I had a brief look over the earnings, I sent you two things out of it, Steve, which was mm. that div dividend up and buyback. So Paul's going to absolutely love it. Um, but the only the other things I saw was that only two of their four acquisitions have made have actually gone through. So there is a couple more um, that are, are still yet to go through. So you know you can run the risk of thinking you've made four acquisitions. So looking at these earnings, they're probably just all sort of like been sort of like helped along by you know essentially merging those business in. But uh, they promised they, they mentioned that there was quite strong organic growth in the in the earnings. And again, to to um, Two acquisitions still got to go through so they look strong to me i well they always look strong to be fair they've mentioned that they're starting to realize the savings and uh, uh that refinitive is bringing to the business and um i just think i just think it's a really good stock i think if people want to hear more about lsig then we've done a deep dive on it all of that information is still relative and uh, that's where i would go to check it out it's a good place to start when did we talk about that was that in may or was it January. I can't remember. Uh, something like that. It doesn't give us many options. options at it now. <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's uh, up 19 percent year to date, 17 percent on the last six months, and we've talked about it in the last six months. Yeah. We? So uh, you obviously made a quite a big call on that one, and that's done very well for you since we last. I remember it being it. the middle of winter that we talked about it. It was around the time that we were annoying Pete from Meaningful Money by talking about how old he is, even though that wasn't actually us. Uh, but that's how I kind of anchor that in my head. Um, I've always struggled on this stock for what it's worth. Uh, yes. And so I think I might be starting to unstruggle a little bit here. So 
their last year's accounts look a bit weird because of that Refinitive acquisition, and I was trying to figure out what was what and what wasn't what amongst them, and I never really managed to kind of work out what I think earning some free cash flow looked like in a normal year for this company now, uh, because you look back before and it's kind of irrelevant because they're a, a different animal having made that uh, multi-billion acquisition, so... I think this kind of helps me settle down a little bit and I kind of have them priced at about right here. It sort of depends a little bit. They're a really nice asset light business again. They don't need more staff to grow. They're pretty mission critical. They're well entrenched in a load of stuff. Oh, the price feels about right to me here. Don't be surprised if I've bought this by this time next week. Yeah, and uh, I'm just reading here CEO David Schwimmer. So um, yeah, yep. Ross Geller is the CEO. So that's worth a right <laughs> more than anything uh really interesting stuff and and i must admit i i didn't look any further when we last talked about it and i'm gutted because it's probably 19 percent since you last talked about it that would have been a good winner plus dividends as well uh i'm mm -hmm. guessing what you got up next then so uh, so i've grouped together uh the next two which was nintendo and amd because there's amd chips in the switch i think so that kind of works as a grouping <laughs> for me um nintendo's was a little bit soft um so they generally give you the highlights first so i will give you them um so 3.43 million switches shipped uh so that's a 111.08 million now um lifetime ship so i think that's still pretty strong strangely for a, a console as old as it is um switch sports the game 4.84 million copies mario strikers 1.91 kirby 4.53 um but this ended up with hardware down 22.9 percent year over year and software sales down 8.6 percent year over year so as good as those numbers are not good enough uh, if you convert them back to dollars i've done that for you because i'm nice 2.31 billion in revenue which is down about 4.7 percent year over year operating profit uh was about 763 uh million which is down 15.1 percent year <laughs> over year and uh, they did reaffirm their profit guidance for the year so i i, I had a look at sony's earnings as well um their playstation report was so soft and uh i think nintendo's probably got the better lineup coming um so yeah i'd expect software sales continuing uh, supporting this declining hardware sale in the midterm uh ea's ceo remarked that the world is currently on vacation uh and he uh, he he might be right it, it has been a while for us amd on the other hand was a monster uh revenues beat consensus they beat on gross profit gross margin operating income operating margin adjusted eps uh the guide was a little bit soft on revenues and uh, gross margins they were they were two percent under what uh, consensus um but amd looked really strong growth in the 50s for a for a company as big as this i mean we talk about the law of big numbers a lot uh they were doing six and a half billion in revenues uh up 56 percent steve how do you feel about that amd was interesting i thought the market reacted reasonably poorly to their earnings and i was trying to figure out why and one of the kind of reasons that i saw being mooted around is that because they are basically in a duopoly with intel uh, where it comes to sort of uh, x86 chips and so on and intel was so bad uh amd were kind of expected to outperform by more uh, and the fact that they didn't um sort of uh, caused people to be slightly disappointed a little bit uh i don't have much of a view on amd this is the part of the sort of semiconductor race that i stay away from if i'm honest with you i mean i stay away from pretty much all of it to be honest but especially this kind of thing i've vaguely managed to get my head around what the economics of the business looked like but I'm convinced that I don't understand moats in this area at all, because insofar as there should uh, be a moat that I can understand, it ought to be on Intel's side, and it pretty clearly isn't. 
So, uh, uh, one I tend to give the swerve to. Paul, you own a semiconductor stock. I know it's not this one. Uh, yeah, I don't understand this week at all. Obviously, I what what I don't understand the most is what happened to Intel. What the hell happened? And I've seen the the CEO smiling smug face at his uh, as his, at his reveals and on his on his uh, earnings calls, and I was just like. What are you saying, mate? Yeah, you've got nothing to stand on here. He's going, oh yeah, everything's going well. All the development's going perfectly. Moore's law is still on track, and I'm, and I'm like, oh, no, that's definitely curving off, mate. And he's got, and he's just going. But this quarter was really disappointing, and I really don't know what's going on at Intel at the moment. Um, some people I've watched previously have called this as a as terrible stock, and they've called it well, but. With the investment coming on, with the Chips Act coming in, why isn't Intel just able to bump that? Did they do a debt release? Uh, um, they did a massive debt hold recently. Did I see that somewhere? One of you two must have posted it to me. Uh, I did. I think I posted that to everybody else because I, uh, on the Discord because I was just wondering what the hell they were actually planning on doing with that. I, I, Steve's points mm. are really interesting. I'm sorry, just to just to roll back a little bit. Um, the, I guess AMD's earnings to me didn't show you know that they stole a massive amount of market from Intel, but it, it did show really how poor. Uh, Intel did perform that their customers just didn't buy their products. AMD's customers still bought yeah. theirs, um, and that's that's a that to me is even worse for Intel than it is potentially for 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 AMD. So, I mean, I, I'm I, I can't buy the stock because I find AMD like one of the trickiest things to value in the world because I think the there's just no moat in this section of the market, and it seems to be like you know there was times when AMD was completely uh, completely going under and intel was reigning supreme and then it, it seems to have flipped so quickly um and you know who's to say that in in a year or two's time amd's got too big for its boots and intel just comes roaring back i just think well, exactly. there's just there's just that... no way you can play this market safely i think the way we are doing it at the moment paul yeah. is the right way the asml's the klas the applied materials those kind of companies we, that we've all owned at various stages are the right ways to play it because whoever wins we win yeah that's exactly right and and just to point out, since 1995, that race between Intel and AMD has switched about three times. You know, this isn't this isn't new. If you go back to 1995, I remember probably when I was when I was really young, and we got one of our first PCs, and it came with an AMD chip, and every, and the guy who sold it to us was like, ah, "This is the best thing now." You know, th these are these are smashing Intel inside out in the water. I, I remember it clearly. I must have been ten, something like that, and you know, that's what that's what people, in, uh, you know, in the shops on the internet and things are saying to the to the customers at the moment. It's exactly the same thing. I do wonder if one day it'll all switch back, and this is just a big cyclical thing that we're in between the chip designers and really, TMC's ahead more than anyone on this. Uh, um, and that, and that's a that's probably another big problem for Intel. I know we're talking about a lot, a lot about Intel rather than AMD here, but AMD's a designer, TMC's a manufacturer, Intel is a chip designer and manufacturer. Maybe it's spreading itself too thin. You know, it's there's there's all these things going on, and um, AMD seems to be the better product. At, well, it is the better product at the moment, and you can see the customers flocking to it. 
Um, and unfortunately, that's the story right now. Whether that's still the story in the future, I have no idea. I am out because of that. Yeah, are you in any gaming things, um, Paul? No, no. I I do have in a very old Hargreaves Lansdowne account, which I couldn't get the money out of. Uh, I just put it into one of the gaming ETFs, and it's pretty much got Nvidia at the top. It's about thirty percent down. Um, it's just an account which I just—it's got about two grand in it that I've never—I never look at. I've never seen it in my life. Uh, I think it had two in there, but I did bet on gaming because that's—that's a—that's a—that's a trend, right? That's the—you know—everyone was talking about that a year ago. Gaming. I feel is like it's like definitely a big soon. movement and a big trend and a big thing that matters to a lot of people. I sort of feel like it's more of a games workshop trend than a sort of Netflix trend uh, or something like that. And that there are people who care very deeply about this sort of thing. I nearly got into a gaming stock and then Steve talked me out of it. Well, he didn't talk me out of it. He showed me a video that talked me out of it. Because um, uh, I was thinking, look, I think this gaming stuff is probably pretty lucrative. And if I like this kind of thing, where would I look? I'd probably look at EA Sports because they can't be that difficult to just cough out another version of FIFA or Madden or whatever it is, right? Year after year after year. Um, actually, that was one of the ones that I thought that came to mind for me in the episode that I missed where you guys were talking about what might do well from the women's Euros. I was wondering whether someone like EA Sports might chuck out a women's Euros edition or build that onto a, uh, an existing um, game that they have. Something along those lines. But um, that was uh, that would be the kind of stock I'd lean towards. And then Steve showed me a video that said it's basically all horrible uh, and it's mostly full of ripping people off by having them buy things in-game and uh, all kinds of issues around that. Another one that came in not too strong in this area that we haven't mentioned was Activision Blizzard, probably because its mm -hmm. earnings don't really matter very much, or at least they probably don't. It's there for downside protection, and if you are an Activision Blizzard shareholder, you probably want to keep an eye on that, just in case your uh, takeover deal doesn't go through. It's worth noting, then, that I think Call of Duty didn't hold up particularly well in terms of uh, stickiness and repeat um, customers, because... In the way I think that something like FIFA would, Call of Duty did not. But um, it seems in general softness across the kind of gaming um, sector in that case, then EA fared slightly better than most. But yeah, I think the kind of EA person is sort of right in thinking that people are generally going to Air... Well, not going to Airbnbs, I suppose, but going on holidays and stuff rather than, um, <laughs> as Charlie Munger said, spending 20 hours a week pretending to be an assassin. Yeah, it's it's hard to... You know, esports as well is another another massive thing, isn't it? and and you know that that again mm. just filters down, filters down to all the chip makers and everything like that. And uh, you, you, everyone was saying it's going to be the next, you know, Super Bowl or the the next World Cup. That hasn't quite come true yet, and it's only really a big sport still in North Korea and China. It's not huge anywhere else yet sorry north, north korea, korea. <laughs> south, you korea. Mean south korea <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine an esports competition in north korea <laughs> you, you you lose you, your whole family goes to a camp <laughs> <laughs> hey that's real jeopardy that i've always thought big brother would be better if ever so often they let a hungry tiger into the house <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that would add some real jeopardy. Imagine, I'd watch that 24-7 to wait for the Tiger release. So, yeah, I'm into that. I like it. I yeah. want eSports in North Korea. No! <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, Big Brother's coming back to ITV, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, that'd be great if they 
just put a, an advert at the front of it and go, at some point during the next nine weeks, there's going to be a Tiger game <laughs> getting released into it. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, viewership would be well up. <laughs> Basically, a version of Squid Games. Then no. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Go, go on, Steve. Dave. Go on. We 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 got a bit silly, but yeah. Go on. Then one more. Okay. So the, the I'm going to finish with Lucid because I feel like we should because Steve Steve spoke about it the other week as his ugly uh, in the good, the bad, and the ugly show that we did. Um, so I'm going to start off with a quote from Elon Musk who said, "I had more kids in Q2 than Lucid made cars." Uh, that was shortly after learning that Lucid badly missed on its car deliveries in the quarter, making a mere 679. That's actually 41 less than they managed the quarter before. Uh, so they also announced that they are cutting their uh, full-year production targets down from 14,000 to between six and 7,000, so essentially half and a bit more. Uh, so Lucid managed 97 million in revenue. Uh, that was a miss on their own estimations, uh, which uh, was nearly 147 million. Uh, incredibly, in making 97 million, they managed to burn 1.5 billion. Um, so Gary Black from the Future Fund, he had this to say: Listening to the Lucid CEO Peter Rawlinson on an earnings call, talking his exaggerated British drawl about Lucid's unprecedented demand amid continuing manufacturing challenges, is like listening to a bedtime story from Grandpa while your house is burning down. <laughs> Thoughts? I have two thoughts for you. <laughs> Can we officially call it an EV bubble yet? Can we officially do this and just say that was an EV bubble, guys? Like it's over now. We we don't need to know about these people. And the that's quite a big difference in fairness. That uh, one survived and one didn't. You'd very much rather be the one that survived. <laughs> I guess I have two thoughts here: one serious, yeah. one less serious. The sort of serious one is that Lucid <laughs> is, I think, structurally handicapped at the moment. So in a chip shortage, which is a thing that has been getting in the way of manufacturing for auto manufacturers up and down the board. Um, Lucid is going to find itself at the back of the queue because they are a smaller uh, customer and whether it's microchip technologies or analog devices or um, Owen Semiconductor or so on and so forth, whoever it is, uh, they are going to give a better service to their bigger, their GMs, Stellantis's and Fords and you get the idea, including uh, Tesla for what it's worth than they are to Lucid. So Lucid is going to struggle here in virtue of its size a little bit. That was my more serious thought. Uh, my less serious thought is that if I was Elon, I wouldn't say things like that. Uh, it's probably also true that he had more kids than Tesla made cars in the Q2 for what it's worth. So I wouldn't go picking on Lucid for that particular observation. <laughs> I saw somebody had put uh, a picture up of um, Elon. Uh, basically, his face was photoshopped onto, you know, the end of the Matrix when there's a guy sat in front of like the 10,000 um, mm. 10, TVs and, and the caption was just Elon saying goodnight to his children. <laughs> 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 I tell you what, ah, oh, that you know, you could do that one with the Buzz Lightyear thing. I'm gonna do that. That'll be on my Instagram tomorrow morning. The Buzz Lightyear meme with all the the Buzz Lightyears lined up in the shop. That's that's gonna be uh, a meme. I'm gonna figure out that one. Um, but Elon's Elon's dad's been going hard on him. Eh? <laughs> like every other day, there's news about how he's disappointed him in in him and things like that. Uh, what is what is going on with that family? There's a lot of pressure there. I think the 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 pot's starting to boil over a little bit uh going on with Elon Musk um we'll see what happens in October that'll be the last last nasty one for October we'll call it there because we've just gone over the hour thank you very much for listening everybody and we will see you next week <laughs>